So before we immerse ourselves for 10 weeks in the book of James, we invited Dr. Brian Tabb to overview the book, kind of give us an introduction to the letter tonight. So just listen real carefully, because I bet he'll answer some of the questions in your homework for this week. So <laughs> pay real close attention. But I think most of you probably already know Brian Tabb and certainly his wife, Kristen, who spoke for us in the Proverbs study this year and will again be on the teaching team for James. And if you don't know Kristen, you may know them by their children. So if you work in youth ministry or children's ministry, you might know their kids. So Julia and JJ are in youth group and then Judson and Jonah are in elementary school. Uh, they are members here at the North Church, where they serve faithfully in all the big and small ways, teaching, they teach children, and they do all the other things too. They're hospitable and very servant-minded. But not only is Brian committed to the local church, he is a very credentialed scholar. So he holds multiple degrees in biblical studies, and the most recent is a PhD in New Testament theology, I got to get the school. Is it the London School of Theology? Did I get it right? <laughs> I have it written somewhere. Yes, it's the London School of Theology. So he has multiple degrees and multiple publications. And some of you may be familiar with his work on Revelation or his book After Emmaus. And if not, you might look those up because if you took the last year of Bible study, those two books would uh, pair nicely with what we covered. But so this is... Um, I, sh I can't fail to mention that he is, Brian is a church member here, he's credentialed, he's published, but he's most recently stepped into the role at Bethlehem College and Seminary as interim president during a season of transition. So he has been on full-time faculty at Bethlehem since 2009. Did you start before that as part-time? Okay, so are we hitting 15, 16 years here pretty soon? Okay, so he spent the better part of his career teaching, laboring faithfully at the college and seminary, and now he serves as its interim president, and he has led with just clear vision and steady leadership, and I don't just say that because he's my boss. <laughs> I say that because it's true, and we are very grateful for him, and we're grateful that you've stepped in to share some of your, your learning and your heart for the church and women's ministry tonight, so thank you, Brian. Well, it's a joy to be with you tonight, and uh, what a privilege to get to open God's Word together, and it's also a bit intimidating, because the particular study that Pam and the other team have chosen is James, which is maybe either your, your favorite or your least favorite book of the New Testament, depending on it's so practical, it's so direct, it's so convicting, uh, and some people just don't know what to do with James. Sometimes I feel like I don't really know what to do with James, but here we go. Uh, so I, I'd love to open us in prayer, and then we'll, we'll dive right in. Gracious God, uh, thank you that you have given us your word, that we might know you that we might have direction in our, our lives, clarity 
on where to go and what to do, how to live as your, as your people, saved by Jesus and longing for his return. So Lord, would you grant us fresh grace to be those who hear with understanding and faith and who do what you say uh, with your help. So we commit our night to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start out with a couple of quotes from the book of James. Of course, it, it famously starts out, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. We don't normally put joy and trials together. It's like, count it all joy when the sun is shining. When your schedule is just the right amount of full and open. When our children are perfectly well behaved and the house is clean and we feel great and we got eight hours of sleep. You know, those times that never happen (laughs) or probably didn't happen for you this week and didn't happen for me and as we've heard, didn't happen for Pam. Count it all joy in the challenges of life, in the hardships of life. What are you thinking, James? How does that work? This, it feels like he he's started us off in this letter with a complete paradox, a, a, a riddle. And the clue is in what follows, the for statement. How does this work? Because trials, most of us don't sign up for those willingly. Most of us don't go seeking those out. But yet we want things like maturity and wisdom and godliness and faith and courage and patience. How do you get those things? Well, you go through trials and you go through them with God and with each other and and, and so forth. But it, notice the word for. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So there's the banner over your year in women's ministry, steadfast. What does that look like? Well, it, it looks like going through trials with faith and trusting that God is with you in that and that he has good purposes in in it and on the other side. So that's the start for James. And there's plenty more challenges and plenty more sweet graces along the way. Like this one. That's a tough one. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? This one makes you want to sign up for the welcome team, doesn't it? Makes me think, who 
do I look for at church? Do I look for my friends? Do I look for those that are like me? Do I look for those that maybe look a little rough around the edges? Look like they maybe aren't familiar with, uh, with this place. We'll talk more about this uh, because there's some kind of theological questions like, aren't we saved by faith, not by works? Didn't the Apostle Paul have something to say about that? Um, James is stressing to us that faith isn't just like abstract truths in our heads. It's, it's, not, it's not a bumper sticker. It's not embroidery on our throw pillows. It has to show up in how we live, if it's real. He, he's, he's given the, he, he's kind of showing, okay, here, here's some ways to stress test to see whether it's real or not. Whether it's the genuine article or if you need to reassess. Or chapter three, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Ooh. Speech. Doesn't get much more practical than that, does it? Particularly when we're affected by various trials. When maybe what's really inside comes out when we didn't plan for it to. And we're so frustrated about all these things and why'd you do that? And oh, wow, what a forest fire was just lit, which started in the heart, but then got expressed. Talk a little bit more about that. One more challenging kind of punchy passage from the book of James. He says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. He goes on from there. To talk about friendship with the world and all kinds of other things. Fights, harsh speech, faith that maybe doesn't get put into practice, trials that are stress testing us. James is really practical and is not dodging the difficult things in life, but going right towards it. Now, it, it, it can feel almost arrestingly abrasive how direct he is and, and how challenging this teaching is. But along the way, there's gospel grace here too. 
there's plenty of gospel grace as we learn about the God who hears our prayers when we cry out. The the God that has in store for us a crown of life on the other side of those trials. So let's dive in. Here's a a little bit of a a roadmap to where we're hoping to go the next hour or so. I want to talk to you a little bit about who James is, uh, especially since there's a few candidates named James, and uh, try to learn what we can about the original readers of this New Testament letter. We're going to talk about the way the book is organized and then focus most of our time on some key issues and features and, and themes of the book of James. And then we'll, we'll close by wrestling again with that difficult passage in chapter 2, which seems to be in tension with what we know from the Apostle Paul. How do faith and works work out uh, in our salvation? So James introduces himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't, I got introduced with all these degrees and and accomplishments, kind of like how it is for James. I'm a servant or a bond slave of God. And of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is particularly noteworthy, I think, when we get to who James was. Um, He recognizes his place. He's one writing under authority. This isn't just his ideas. His this is how it should go but he is a servant. He's doing God's work in what he writes. Now there's three prominent people named James in the New Testament. So we'll walk through those real quick. It's like the elementary school around here, right? It seems like all the biblical names just stack up. In, in my kids' classes, you know, it's like Noah, 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 James, John, James, you know, Ruth, Hannah, Ruth, right? Well, it seems like that for James. So there's James, the son of Zebedee. He's, he might be the first one that came to your mind. You know, James and John, they're not just among the 12, but they're, they're the inner three, Right? The ones that get the sneak peek up on the mountain of transfiguration. Uh, So James, the son of Zebedee, one of the apostles, um, he is mentioned a bunch of times in the New Testament. He also is probably the first apostle that loses his life for the sake of the gospel. He He is killed by King Herod in Acts 12. And the fact that he dies that early on in the story 
has signaled to most uh, biblical scholars that this probably isn't the James that wrote this letter. It's theoretically possible, but uh, his, his early death makes it less likely. Another option is James, the son of Alphaeus. Sometimes he's called like James the Lesser or uh, something like that. Also an apostle that just mentioned a little bit further down in the list of the 12. Uh, he's mentioned in the Gospels, in the book of Acts. Not a whole lot is known about him besides his name. Could be a possible candidate. The other option is James, the brother of Jesus. And this James is mentioned starting in the book of Acts. Now, the brothers of Jesus show up as a group in the Gospels a few times, not always positively. Uh, But this James shows up in Acts 12, in Acts 15. He, He speaks at the Jerusalem Council, where the church is trying to figure out what to do with the Gentile believers that have come to Christ, and do they have to keep the law and become Jews, or do they get to be Christians as Gentiles? Uh, And James is the one that, as a leader of the Jerusalem church, has the kind of clinching argument that's presented in uh, in the book of Acts. And then we see that he he, he's kind of the first among equals in the Jerusalem church by the end of the book of Acts and is also mentioned in Galatians. The majority of New Testament scholars think that this third James is the one that wrote this book. Um, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church, uh, which makes sense because he's writing to the 12 tribes, which is a very Jewish reference. Um, There's some parallels between this book and the teaching of Jesus. We'll talk about that a little bit later. There's a familiarity with the Lord's teaching. There's also some parallels with James's speech in Acts 15 in this book. So those are some of the clues that have, have suggested to people this is, probably, this is probably a likely candidate for the James behind the book of James. Um, so possible that it could be any of these three that are mentioned in the New Testament. The third uh, has seemed the most likely. All right, so he's writing. Now, most of the New Testament letters are written either to an individual that you've heard of, like Timothy or, um, or Titus or Philemon, uh, or they're written to a church or a group of churches, like to the church of God in Corinth or Philippi or Rome. But this one starts out a little different. He writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, the dispersion, it means that they're like scattered about. They're dispersed, right? They're, they're, uh, not, they're not in the land of Israel, but they're scattered about. Kind of 
near and far. And that was the case uh, for Jewish people after exile. And even by the time of the first century, long after the exile, there were Jewish people that were living all around the Roman Empire. They were certainly in Jerusalem and in and Israel, but notice in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul, when he goes to different cities, he often finds a synagogue, and that would have been the Jewish people. And even as he goes all the way to Rome, the kind of capital of the great empire, he finds Jews there. And so this... Uh, this, this suggests a, a Jewish readership, but I don't think he's writing just to Jewish people. I think he's writing to specifically Christians. Notice how he starts. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's writing to believers, like all the other New Testament letters, but probably many of them, if not most of them, are, are of Jewish background. Uh, the references many times to the law or the royal law suggest some of that background and familiarity, where that would have been more foreign to uh, an average Roman. Uh, they, they wouldn't have known what the royal law was. Um, I think James is, is writing, he, he's not writing mainly for the Jerusalem church where he is, is one of the leaders, but he's writing uh, probably a, more of an open letter to not just one particular congregation, but to a group of believers in, in a number of places probably, those who are scattered about. It's a little bit like 1 like Peter how, how that begins uh, the, to the elect exiles in the dispersion. So not just to a particular one congregation, but to uh, a group of people. Uh, and so that, that's, that's about what we can do with that one. Now, James doesn't give this elaborate long introduction like you might see in some of the Apostle Paul's letters. He is, from the beginning, pretty short and sweet. <laughs> I'm James, to the 12 tribes, greetings. That's it. No grace and peace. Uh, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Just, hi. <laughs> Let's get on with it. Let's talk about trials <laughs> and joy and steadfastness. Greetings. That's it. Although that's actually uh, a close parallel with the letter that the uh, leaders of the church send to the um, to Gentile Christians in Acts 15, it says, "Who's writing? Who are they writing to? Greetings." Now, here's what we want to talk about. That's actually the uh, a typical way to write a letter in the ancient world. Uh, so. James saves his, his, his powerful theology just for the, the meat of the, of, the, of the letter rather than 
giving you the sneak preview like the Apostle Paul does with that powerful introduction. All right, how is this book organized? It's complicated. That's the short answer. If you ask, uh, if you surveyed the different commentaries and studies on the book of James, you'd find all sorts of different views about how it's organized. Um, It doesn't necessarily go in a kind of linear argument the whole time. James will kind of go in one direction and then he'll shift and go in another, but then he'll come back to some of those themes later. So it's a little bit more like a circle than a straight line. The the outline that I've found most helpful for highlighting that structure is uh, by by a commentary uh, from Craig Blomberg and Miriam Camel, and they they highlighted uh, three key themes that show up in verses one through eleven, and then those three themes show up again in the next section, and then they show up again in the next section. So it starts out with the count it all joy when you meet trials, but he's going to come back to talk about trials in a couple different ways. We see that, for example, in verse 12 of chapter 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. There it is again. So he's talked about some other stuff since verse, verse 2, but then he's returning to touch on that again. And then in chapter 5, he's going to talk about the steadfastness of Job and the call to prayer for the sick and, and so forth. So we get kind of round one, round two, round three on trials. And he's going to do the same thing with wisdom. Now, the word wisdom just shows up a couple times. But sometimes a concept is there even when a particular term isn't. But we have it right here, starting in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom... Ask God. He gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given. And then he talks more about asking with faith. But he's going to come back to this theme of wisdom in a couple different ways. He's going to talk about wisdom in how we talk, in not just being uh, those who hear and it's in one ear out the other, but we, we hear and we, and we act in accordance with what we hear. We're, we're not just hearers only, but hearers and doers. And then he's going to come back again and talk more about wisdom and, and, and the God who gives wisdom. In chapter 3, who is wise and understanding? Among you, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. It goes on from there, describing 
the, the earthly wisdom that isn't really wisdom and the wisdom from above that bears a harvest of righteousness. And he mentions one more major theme here in the introduction, starting in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Riches and poverty, pride and humility. Some of the most challenging things James has to say have to do with money and possessions and generosity and partiality and where we put our hope and our confidence and security. And he starts out by saying, if you want to go high, go low. If you're, if you're getting, a little, getting a little lofty there, come down. Remember that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So he circles back on that theme a couple times. So, so these three key themes, faith and trials, true wisdom, where it comes from, riches and poverty, all of these are, 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 are showing faith at work. What it really looks like to trust God and his promises. What it looks like in practice in a variety of circumstances in our life. How we respond to trials. What we're asking God for and how we use our money. So these three themes get introduced right away, and he's going to come back there a couple different ways. Kind of variations on the theme. Kind of like a, a, a beautiful piece of classical music, where you have a, you know, kind of a, a, a certain melody line or a, a, several melody lines, and then they, you, you hear them again, round two or round three. But there's, it's not just a direct repeat. Sometimes the, the great composers will have the, the repeat, but with a twist. That's kind of what we have here in James. All right, a couple key features, and then we'll jump into kind of the, the meat of the message. Uh, and wrestle with that. 54 commands in 108 verses. Now, there may not be many math professors in the room, but that's one out of every two verses has a command in it. And that starts in verse 2, of course, since he didn't bother with that extended greeting. This is a this is a very direct New Testament book. It is pastoral, it is practical, and it is punchy. Consider James 4. I've highlighted the, uh, 
various commands just in these verses. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Humble yourselves. God will exalt you. Boom, boom, boom. That's James's style. It's very direct. It's very practical. What should we do with this teaching? James has an answer for us. James also teaches us about faith in action using vivid imagery. Some of us really like the the heady theology, the kind of abstract things, but others, it's like, well, I, I, I need a picture. I need a story. I need, I need something that's concrete, boots on the ground, to actually show me what this looks like. Well, James has plenty of these powerful word pictures that, that, that fix in our minds and our hearts. I'll give you six of them. Have you ever been just kind of floating around in the ocean on a, you know, a, a, a surfboard or a little raft or a small boat or something and you're just kind of washing back and forth? That's the picture that James has for the one who doubts James 1, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Just adrift, anchorless. There's no rudder, there's no motor. Where where are you going? You're just kind of floating along at the mercy of the waves, at the mercy of circumstances, whatever may come, that's the one who doubts. Or the pursuit of riches, like the wilted flower. the rich in his humiliation like a flower of the grass will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls. Its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I love flowers. They're beautiful. I love around Mother's Day. We have this tree in our backyard and I can see it from our our bedroom window and right around Mother's Day, it buds. And it's beautiful. And within a week, all of those flowers are on the ground and we're mowing them. (laughs) You know? Or just sweeping them up, raking them up, whatever, playing in them. Just like that. This fleeting glory. This beauty that is here today and gone tomorrow. And this picture 
is going to prepare us for another one that's coming in chapter 5 that's going to highlight the brevity of our lives and also the, the, the transience of the things of this world. Oh, they're beautiful. But it is a, it is a very temporal glory. It is a short lived glory here today and gone tomorrow and what does James follow that picture with in verse 12 with something that endures blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And putting these right next to each other, it's almost like a choice, right? It's like, do you want the flower that's going to fade? Or do you want that crown of life that is going to endure? Another picture here in chapter one, the mirror. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and he once forgets what he looks like. But... The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Can you imagine looking in the mirror in the morning and you're like, whoa, I forgot that I had brown hair. I forgot that I wore glasses. You know? No, of course not, right? know what we look like generally we may not like it especially in the morning uh, but th- there, there's a connection here between the mirror as well as the word do you see that looking into the mirror looking into the law of liberty has a way of kind of revealing What are we really like? How silly would it be to glance at ourselves day after day in the mirror and then totally forget what we look like? Under normal health circumstances and and so forth. That wouldn't be natural. And James is saying, so also it is not natural for the Christian to have to 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 be hearing the word and not be changed by it to be just exactly the same after 20 years of sitting in church having bible studies it's like where's the fruit are are you being changed are are you really looking in to the law of liberty 
Is it the right kind of hearing? The kind of hearing that leads to action? That's the third picture. Next one comes in chapter 3, the forest fire. I already previewed that one. And James wrote before social media, right? James wrote long before everybody was connected and could hear everybody's instant thoughts that were unfiltered at all times of the day. The power of words. Think for a moment about words that you can remember somebody sharing with you that were really life-giving and sustaining and encouraging when you were just down and out, not sure, like, where am I going to go from here? And then somebody had that word fitly spoken, a word of grace and wisdom and hope for you. And that made all the difference. Anybody think of one? Yeah? Now think about the other side. Think about some time when people said something that was really hurtful to you. A rumor, a gossip, maybe a a harsh word from somebody you loved. Biting criticism, unfair, over-the-top, angry, whatever it is. Maybe it's a combination of those. Those words have such power, don't they? Like if I'm teaching my kids about building a fire in the backyard. You know, you want to put it here, not over there. You don't just light any old match and just throw it around. Because you're going to burn the house down. You're going to burn the whole neighborhood down. You're going to burn the whole city down. How do these forest fires start? One careless, one careless campfire. One, one cigarette that's tossed out the window. One, uh, you know, just... A person that's not paying attention and forgets about the power of fire. It starts with just that little little red spark. It can lead to uncontrollable, raging flames. So also are words. Next picture, the mist, the vapor. Maybe some of you have seen John Piper's devotional book, Life is a Vapor. I think it probably comes from this verse. From chapter, chapter 5, that section on boasting about tomorrow. 
Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist or a vapor. Fog. It appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So this is a variation on that earlier picture with the wilting flower, right? It's beautiful and it's gone. That fog will lift soon. He's like, your life is like that. So maybe hold your plans a little bit looser. It reminds me of that parable that Jesus told about the wealthy man who wanted to store up for himself more and more. It's like, I'm going to build bigger and bigger barns. And he says, this night your soul is demanded of you. All that planning. Now this doesn't mean you shouldn't make wise plans. You shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't save. You shouldn't, it doesn't mean you should just go day by day without any appointments and just, you know, kind of uh, roam your way through life. But it means don't, don't make your plans independent of God. And don't don't forget that the Lord is the one that numbers our days. As Psalm 90 says, we hold those plans with open hands because we remember that God is from everlasting to everlasting and our lives are brief. And we don't know the length of them. One more. The hardworking farmer. Patience in suffering. I don't know about you. I have farmers in my family. My great uncle John farmed all his life in southwest Oklahoma. The year he died, he said he had the best cotton crop he'd ever had. He was about 90 years old. (laughs) Still going out there. Still laboring. This is the picture of patience that James gives. Some of you love to work in the garden and grow beautiful flowers and vegetables and and some of you maybe don't feel like you like that all that much because it takes so long Uh, I'm more in that category Uh, he says be patient therefore until the coming of the Lord see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it 
until it receives the early and the late rains. You, 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 can't, you can't make corn grow in a day. You can't make tomatoes grow in 10 minutes. You can run over to the local Aldi and hopefully they have some in stock. But to, to grow them takes time. And so also, we have to be patient with our lives. All of us are waiting for something. And that experience of waiting, developing patience, is a lifelong endeavor. We're waiting for various things, and all of us as believers are waiting for the Lord's return. He says, don't give up. The, the, the farmer isn't just sitting around, kicked back on his lazy boy. He, he's waiting while working the land. He's, he's busy while working. It's a powerful picture. And, and trusting that God gives the growth. And the harvest will come if we don't grow weary and give up. So here's six of the multiple pictures in James where he, he helps us uh, take these abstract theological truths and, and connect them to daily life to these pictures that we see every day. That mirror in the bathroom in the morning. The, the, the waves in the lake or the sea. The wilting flower. That one spark that could get out of control. Another feature of the book of James is that this book has lots of parallels with the Gospels and with Jesus' teaching. For example, he says, don't, don't swear either by heaven or by earth, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is almost word for word what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Straightforward speech. You do what you say. You follow through. You don't need a kind of like, no, I really, really mean it. I really promise. Like, just, just follow through. This is one of many examples where James is reflecting Jesus' teaching. Here's a list of a number of them, uh, just from the Sermon on the Mount. Joy amidst trials, call to be perfect, asking God who gives good things. Warning against anger, warnings against hearing without doing. 
Remember the wise man who built his house on the sand? That's, that's Jesus' version of, of James in the mirror. Could go on. But the, this isn't just accidental. This shows that the brother of our Lord really understood Jesus' teaching and is applying it powerfully and potently for the, for the upbuilding of the church. I think we could summarize the message of James as faith in action. Faith that works. Faith and its fruits. Something like that. Real faith. Active faith. There is a passive quality to faith as we're receiving from God. We're receiving salvation from our Lord Jesus and fresh grace and mercy from him. But that doesn't lead us to be passive people. But that bears fruit in love. And James hits this theme hard again and again. I think most of these sections that we've looked at, the call to, to wisdom and how we handle our resources and how we respond to trials and so forth, all of these are getting at this theme of faith at work, faith in action. And one passage that particularly captures that is at the end of chapter 1 where he says, if anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, some people have taken this verse, just kind of excised it out of context and said, see, it's, Christianity is only about what you do. It's only about social activism. It's only about, you know, kind of getting out there. It's not the doctrine-y stuff. It's not heady. It's just about action. And there's a partial truth there that's, that's kind of acting as the whole truth. And that's not the whole truth according to James, but it is part of the truth. It's like, what does your faith look like when someone in need is in your path to help them? What does your faith look like in how you talk to other people? What does that look like when you feel the tug of the world and the things of the world, how do you respond then? All of those things are, are, are tests, are opportunities to put faith into practice. So with that, several key themes. Again, we're kind of 
circling back through some of these. One of them is steadfastness in trials. We want the steadfastness. We don't always want the trials. But that's the, that's the, that's the way that God has designed to make us stable and steadfast. Not blown about or, or tossed about on the waves of life. Blessed is the one who is steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There is a beautiful promise. There is future grace in store for us that motivates our our, our lives that keeps us going, knowing that it is going to be totally worth it in the end. Notice the recurring theme in chapter 5. Be patient. Be patient. Be patient. Remain steadfast. Remember Job's patience. We may not want Job's trials, but we want his faith. We want to trust his God. And we know how the story of Job ends, right? We're not like him just kind of going... through without the the full picture. Steadfastness in trials. That's what faith looks like. Or true wisdom from God. If any of you lacks wisdom, it's like, yes. Can you think of a time this week where you're like, Man, I'm just not quite sure what to do about X. I don't know how to respond to this particular email. I don't know what to do about this situation at my house or with my kids or at work or fill in the blank. We need wisdom. And you ask for it. And we're asking a generous God. He loves to say yes when we ask for things according to his will. Lord, I want wisdom. Remember the wisest man of the Old Testament? He asked for an understanding heart. He asked for wisdom, not just good circumstances. Faith also uh, gets put into practice as we uh, consider money and possessions. James warns against many dangers of wealth. And in that way also, he's 
following the teaching of our Lord. Remember some of the hard teachings Jesus had? Like how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. James warns us against pride and and false security in what we have. And this and this hits close to home for many people in our in our cities, many people in this room. If you go to the the financial planner, they're going to talk about how much how much money do you need to retire when you want to retire, to have the lifestyle that you want, to have security, financial security and independence. And there's there's a measure of wisdom in that sort of long-term thinking. Not just instant gratification, but deliberate planning. But there's also a potential danger, right? That what if, what if that money disappears? What, then what? Can I still trust God? Is that really, is my retirement account my ultimate security? Or do I rest in the Lord Jesus? And know that he's going to take care of me. James says, let's, let's do a heart check, Christians. And he warns us against being stained from the world. This is so hard. Had this talk recently with one of my kids who said, man, it's just, I feel the the pull of the world. It's like, just how do I navigate that, Dad? And we all feel that in, in many ways. We just may not verbalize it uh, like a teenager. And the danger of partiality, preferring those that might help us in our in our climb, to, in our social circles. Those that might seem more impressive. So be careful about that. Probably looked a little different in the first century world than it does today. But some of, the, some of these realities have been with the church from the beginning. Jesus warned about it. James warns about it. Now there's lots of positive teaching elsewhere in the Proverbs and in Paul's letters and and other places about storing up treasures in heaven and being generous and sharing and being wise and so forth. But James is especially pushing on some of these warnings. He's seeing that these are problems, these are dangers. 
that are drawing people's hearts away from the Lord or leading to divisions in the church or compromise. Be careful. Your faith has everything to do with how you spend your money and how you respond to the world. So let's do a heart check, Christian. So all this kind of builds towards true faith that works, being doers of the word, not just hearers. Now, in in many cases in, in Scripture, when it talks about hearing, it's, it's not just, you know, were there audible sounds that were vibrating your eardrums, you know? But it, it's, it's actually, you, you hear something and you respond a certain way. Like if you call your kids and say, it's time for dinner, and everybody's just, you know, doing their own thing. You know, it's like, did you hear me? Oh, yeah, I heard you. Well, you, you didn't, because that, that, that call was a call to action. <laughs> and it has gone unheeded. And many of us have been there, or are there. And James is saying, this is a call to action. If you're... If, if we're really understanding the words of our Lord Jesus, then that should change us. He's not leaving us where we are, where it's just in one ear out the other, but it's leading to a response. Now this leads us to one of the biggest challenges in the book. The the faith and works stuff. Because it sounds like the exact opposite of what the Apostle Paul said. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He says that a lot in Romans and in Galatians. And then James comes along and he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Like, wait, faith alone, isn't that like the whole Protestant Reformation? Sola fide? Yeah, that's like one of the solas. Because that's part of the gospel, right? It's like, did James not get the memo? Hmm. So what do you do when you come up with verses that seem like they don't really fit together? You can either say, they don't fit together, the, I, I prefer this one instead of this one. Or I don't buy any of it. Or faith-seeking understanding, like, let's look more carefully at that. Right? This was the big controversy of the Protestant Reformation. Right? How to understand how to reconcile Paul and James. What, what faith and works have to do with each other. So, what do we do with this? Here's my attempt. 
I think that James and Paul actually agree with each other, but they're emphasizing different things because they are responding to different problems. James is calling out fake faith. Empty, empty confessions. Bumper sticker Christianity where you're still driving like a maniac. Paul is correcting a wrong view of works, especially works associated with the Jewish law. Like, maybe if I have the right diet, I'm in. Maybe if I very properly keep the Sabbath day, I'm accepted by God. No. That, that's, not, that's not what time it is in biblical history. Jesus has already come. He's broken down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. The, the period where the law was, was, was functioning in that way is, is past. So Paul's, Paul's really highlighting that. While James is highlighting something else. And that's, I think, why they sound different. But let's keep going even a little further. Notice some ways that they agree. The apostle that talks about being justified by faith alone apart from works of the law also said, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only, the only thing that counts is faith working through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The only thing that counts is love that is coming from faith. That's the apostle of justification by faith alone saying that. And James would be very happy about it. He says basically the same thing. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. These biblical writers also both appeal to different parts of the story of Abraham to make their points about true faith, justifying faith that bears real fruit, that shows up in the trial. Like when God says, offer up your only son. It's at that point when, when Abraham has taken that long walk of obedience when he does not understand what God is up to. And he is ready to follow through. That the voice comes, now I know. Now I see that it's real. Now I know that you fear me. Now I know that this faith is real. It's been put to the test and shown to be gold.
Abraham believes God and it's counted to him as righteousness. And that faith leads him up the mountain in costly obedience. It keeps him wandering around trusting God without a a permanent home. It, it, It helps him to wait until he's 100 years old to have that promised child. That faith shows up in action. And that's what Paul, that's what James is wanting to emphasize. While Paul is focusing on, he's, he's counted righteous before he does anything. Both truths from the same story for different occasions. So in conclusion, we could say that James condemns any form of Christianity that drifts into a sterile, actionless orthodoxy. Faith, not what we do, is fundamental for establishing a relationship with God, but faith must be given content. Genuine faith always and inevitably produces evidence of its existence in a life of righteous living. Biblical faith cannot exist apart from acts of obedience to God. Faith works out in love. So James, in closing, helps us see what real faith looks like. It looks like rejoicing when life is hard. It looks like praying with confidence, even when it seems like God's taken a while. It looks like obeying God's word, putting it into practice. It looks like visiting those that are experiencing hardship, caring for widows and orphans, the neediest people in the ancient world, those without the social security blanket. It looks like avoiding partiality and showing love and mercy. It looks like using our words to bless people and not curse them. It looks like pursuing peace. It looks like friendship with God, not friendship with the world. It looks like taking our lives, our plans, our schedules, our dreams, and holding them with open hands and saying, they're yours, Lord. And a surprising one at the end. It looks like going after those that have strayed, pursuing the prodigals. These are some of the things that we see in the book of James where where faith 
is given content, is, is shown up in action. And these are, there's probably something in here that is reassuring to you. It's like, yes, Lord, I'm so glad about that. And there's probably something on this list that is a little unsettling. It's like, ooh, I, I like that one, not that one. Or this one's a growth area, maybe. That's, that's what God's word does for us. We have promises and warnings. We have commands and, and words of reassurance and comfort. And it's, it's by that combination of hard truths and, and reassuring, comforting truths that God helps us to keep going. That God prepares us to be useful for him. Stable and steadfast, fruitful and faithful, bearing a harvest of righteousness as James says in chapter 3. So that's my hope for, for all of us, that God's word would bear good fruit in our lives. Uh, let me close this in prayer, and we'll, from there. Lord, your word invites us to ask you for wisdom. Lord, we need wisdom to know what to do with this book. What it looks like to take even one of these truths and put it into practice in our life this week. What area might you be calling us to trust you with? Where might you be testing us and refining us, developing patience and steadfastness Lord would you help us to be those who hear your word and do what it says who rejoice in trials who bear good fruit that shows off your steadfastness your trustworthiness your power in our weakness. Do your work through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.